Our Father in heaven, we love you because you have first loved us and have given your Son as a propitiation, as a wrath-bearing sacrifice in our place so that we might experience your love. We thank you that you have drawn near to us in Christ, that you desire an intimate relationship with your people. Father, we thank you today that though we sin repeatedly against you, you repeat your kindnesses to us over and over again. Thank you that you are forgiving and gracious. Thank you that though our sins are many, your mercy is more. We're so grateful that you have not given us what we deserve. We thank you that instead of hell, you have given us eternal life in heaven. Instead of judgment, you have brought about reconciliation and peace. We're so glad, Father, that we have every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Father, help us to be grateful. We're thankful today as well that, that you are good and upright and that you teach sinners in the way. And Father, that is what we are. We are sinners and we need to be taught how to live. We need to be taught how to honor you. We need to be taught to be humble, to be gentle, to be patient, and to bear with one another in love. We need your instruction. We are natively foolish, and yet you are all wise, and so we ask that you would impart wisdom, that you would give us repentance and faith, that you would help us to take your word and act upon it. Father, we ask all these things today in the name of Christ. Amen. We have a lot of ground to cover uh, this morning, and so I want to dive right in to Ephesians. I do want to spend a few minutes uh, giving you a little bit of background in Ephesians, and then a little bit about those to whom Paul is writing, and then we'll get to our text. The Apostle Paul spends Ephesians 1 through 3 expounding God's eternal plan of redemption. A plan that brings about the praise of His glorious grace. The engineer of that eternal plan of redemption is the Father. The mediator of that plan is our Lord Jesus Christ. The guarantor of the believer's participation in that plan is the Spirit of Christ, and the goal of the plan of redemption is the summing up of all things in Christ. That's the first three chapters of Ephesians in a very quick uh, nutshell. We'll look at it a little bit more in a minute. In chapters four to six, Paul exhorts the church in Ephesus to live a life that corresponds with the glorious plan of redemption. In other words, redeemed sinners are to live a certain way in this world. We have been saved by grace through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, and the grace we have received is intended not only to make us alive together with Christ and to secure us for an eternity with Christ, but also it is to actually make us like Christ. We have been saved by grace, and we are being saved by grace, and we will be saved by grace. Paul's emphasis in Ephesians 4 to 6 is on teaching the Christians in Ephesus and on teaching us that there are desires, attitudes, and behaviors that are consistent with being saved and that God requires them of us. Ephesians 4 begins to spell out the way of living that is consistent with God's saving mercies. Godly desires, attitudes, and behaviors are the proper response for what God has accomplished for us in Christ. 
And such desires, attitudes, and behaviors are the outpouring of praise to God, a proper spiritual sacrifice, if you will, in light of the high calling that Christians have received in Christ. Paul begins this section by reminding the church that they are to walk worthy of the calling by which they have been called. God calls sinners to himself, and then he has things for sinners to do. Uh, He wants us to grow in Christ's likeness. God's calling of sinners to himself calls us to live for him who loved us and gave himself for us. You might ask yourself this morning, is that my heart? Have I tasted and seen that the Lord is good? Do I know his salvation? Do I recognize that he has forgiven me of my sins? And if that's the case, do I have a longing? Do I have a deep-seated desire to live for his honor? Am I striving by the grace of God to live for the glory of God? Vaughn says it this way, the inference is that the high calling the Christian has experienced carries with it very weighty responsibilities. And the first of these weighty responsibilities or righteous responses to what God has done for us in Christ is that we are to pursue heart attitudes that promote the earnest maintenance of the Spirit-produced unity in the people of God. And hopefully that will become more clear as we go on. If you will, open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4. And if you'll stand, we'll read Ephesians 4, 1 through 6. Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as also you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. Please be seated. Before we jump right into the text here, uh, I do want to remind you of who Paul is writing to. I think that's important for the purpose of understanding what, God, what Paul and what God are calling Christians uh, to here in this uh, passage. And so I'm going to run through this briefly, and then we're going to look at the three points that are in your notes. And admittedly, Uh, Like a very bad preacher, I'm going to spend very little time on point one and point three and a whole lot of time on point two. Uh, Paul is speaking to a church likely compiled of Jew and Gentile, male and female, free and slave, rich and poor. There might be a child of God in Ephesus who belongs to the socially elite, perhaps a high Roman governor of some sort, has bowed the knee to the Lord Jesus Christ. There likely is a poor servant girl, maybe considered to be an outcast in that society. From the account of Paul's visit to Ephesus in Acts 19, we learn there is likely among this church a new Christian with deeply seated Jewish convictions. And there's also likely a new Christian saved out of witchcraft and sorcery and has participated in temple worship of the goddess Artemis. They're very different folks being saved, but they're all blood-bought children of the living God, chosen by Him, precious to Him, forgiven by Him, and blessed by Him. Every one of them has experienced the same spiritual blessings in the heavenly places in Christ 
Jesus. They're all very different. They're all redeemed, but they're also bringing all of their own self into that little or big congregation there in Ephesus. And along with themselves, their likes and dislikes, their preferences, they are bringing their sinful selfishness, their pride, their arrogance to convolute and make life together all the more difficult. And I want us to get a sense of the diversity in the body of Christ. Uh, We don't have to spend long to find out that we are all very different. Uh, I I haven't spent hours and hours uh, with all of our pastors here, but they're very different men. They approach life differently. They think uh, differently. You could put Rod and me together, and here is a man who is probably very particular and meticulous about his schedule, and here I am just making it up as I go. We're different in the way we approach life. We're different in the way we approach problems. We're different in the way that we problem solve. Really, a lot of that is because God has made us different, and he's gifted us differently. Then we bring our sin into it and make it even all the more difficult. The daily life of individuals in the church in Ephesus would have varied significantly, but I want us to think that our daily lives very significantly. I want us to be able to apply this passage to us, not just to the church in Ephesus. And so I want us to think a little bit through some of our differences. There are social, economic, cultural, and personal differences. What are some of those? Well, we eat different food. We wear different clothes. There are those who dress very formal and those who dress very informal and those who have to dress formal when they're preaching and those who choose to dress informal when they're not. There are those who like meat and those who just like vegetables. We have different pastimes and different activities we enjoy. We like different holidays and have different traditions in those holidays. Some of you may have a large annual salary and have plenty of money in the bank, and some of you may be making it day to day and not have any money in the bank. We pick different candle scents and ice cream flavors. We're very different. Some like the beach, some like mountains. If you spend any time with anyone and you have a pulse, you know that there are lots of differences. I won't make you raise your hand like I do the kids in the 11 to 13-year-old class, but if you're married or you live with someone, I'm sure you're batting 100% on complete agreement in everything you do. On the contrary, sometimes we can't even agree when to eat or where to eat and sometimes even how to eat. We have religious preferences as well. Perhaps there are those who want to sing mostly hymns or only hymns and then there are those that want to sing mostly new songs or only new songs. We have religious convictions. Perhaps there are those who drink alcohol And those who don't like it out of conviction and concern. There are those who are convinced that homeschooling is the best way to educate your children. There are others who think that private school is the best way. And there's even a group of people that think that public school is the best way. We have different convictions. In fact, even this last week, there are some families that know and love the Lord Jesus Christ and dress their kids up and sent them out to get candy. And there are some families that know and love the Lord Jesus Christ who think such a practice is participating in pagan worship, much like the Corinthian conundrum of eating meat sacrificed to idols. We have religious convictions that differ. We have doctrinal differences. Some are continuationalist versus cessationist. Some are premillennial versus all millennial and you get the idea we could go on and on about our differences we also have different gifting God in his infinite wisdom and we see this in first Corinthians 12 God the Spirit gives various gifts to the people of God he wants a variety of gifts and he doesn't give all the gifts to just one individual and in fact you know you and me we just wish everyone had our gift and was like us so that we didn't have to use our gift 
has much. Now add to all of our differences again this. We are sinners. We act selfishly. We have deep convictions that are born not just out of practices or tradition, but actually born out of pride and selfishness and sin. These are the people of God. We are the people of God with all of our very differences that God is calling to walk with one another in unity, to seek to preserve the unity that the Spirit of Christ has created in joining us together as one body. The Bible teaches us and Paul is teaching us that diversity is never at variance with unity in the plan of redemption. In fact, a diverse group of people united in Christ and living for the glory of Christ is actually a mark of spiritual maturity. In fact, it magnifies the glory of Christ. It magnifies what grace does in the lives of people who would not otherwise probably be caught dead with one another. It changes, it transforms, it brings together a group of people. And when we seek to preserve that unity, we are telling an onlooking world and telling one another that what we have in common is what matters. God is interested in unity, not uniformity. I can create any sort of church. I can create the homeschooling church. I can create the Calvinist church. I can create the tattoo church. I can create whatever sort of church you want, but it's not the church. The church is the only institution. It is the only living organism, if you will, in which people that are extremely different come together and intimately love one another and serve one another and give themselves for the good of one another, all for the glory of the Lord. So with that in mind, I want you to remember that we're very, very different. But what we have in common is that we're redeemed by the blood of Christ. We are chosen from eternity past by the Father in heaven. We are called into a relationship with Him. We are redeemed, which is the forgiveness of our sins. We are granted again every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places that is in Christ. We are joined together by that Spirit. He is the guarantor of the good things to come. And we can go on and on in regards to the blessings that we have received, the things that unite us, the things that make us one. And so with that in mind, I know it's a bit of a lengthy introduction, but I think it's important to set the stage when you're jumping right into the middle of a book. We come to Ephesians chapter 4, and I want to open this up under three simple headings. And again, I'm going to spend the, the bulk of the time in the second one, but remember your calling. Remember your calling, the motivation of a worthy walk. Therefore, I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. Paul addresses the church as the prisoner of the Lord, perhaps to remind them uh, that he is currently in prison and under authority, but also to remind these saints what commitment to Christ looks like. I, the prisoner of the Lord, I who have given up all to live for the glory of Christ, it's, this is who is exhorting you. I have practiced what I preached. In other words, Paul begins his exhortation with a strong appeal. I want you to note, implore. This is a strong entreaty, an earnest request, a robust solicitation. And sometimes it's helpful for us to get the sense of something uh, when we contemplate what it is not first. And so this is what Paul is not doing. You know what? Christians in Ephesus, it would be a good idea. If you would perhaps maybe think about preserving unity in the body. Uh, you know, I'm going to call you to humility and gentleness and kindness. And, and these are good suggestions of one way to live with one another. No, that's not what he is after at all. In fact, on the contrary, he's making a forceful plea. This is a command. It comes with great force, stated direct, directly. Paul is saying, this is not optional. This is what God has called you to. 
He has already told them that they used to walk in sin, that they used to be dead in their trespasses and sins and walked according to the course of this world. But God, through his eternal plan of salvation, because of his great love with which he loved them, has made them alive together with Christ, and he has prepared beforehand good works that they might walk in them. And Paul is calling them to walk in those good works and to walk with the right heart as they seek to preserve unity, the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. What's the motivation that he gives them for what he's about to call them to note, I implore you to walk. And, and, and some of you may not know, and so I'll just say it, and some of you may get it exactly as it says, but that means the manner of your living, the way in which you live a life, the way in which you go about life in the church, life with your spouse, life with your children, the manner of your living. I want it to be consistent. God is calling it to be consistent with the high calling with which you have been called. Well, what is this calling? Again, we've hinted at it a little bit here and there, but we can go back. Uh, We can go back uh, to Ephesians 1, 2, and 3 and really just study all that that is contained in this calling. And I'm just going to kind of run through it quickly to help you think about it again. Uh, But we've been blessed with every spiritual blessing. And some of those blessings are God the Father has chosen us in Christ before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless. In love, he has predestined us adoption as uh, to be adopted as sons. We once were wandering on our own. We once were not a part of the family of God without hope and without God. And God has given us hope. He has brought us near into his family. He has granted us an everlasting hope. He has redeemed us. He has brought about the forgiveness of our sins. God has sent His Son into the world to die in our place. The righteous for the unrighteous. The just for the unjust. He was nailed to that cross in order that He might take away our sins. We could go on and consider that we have been born again to a living hope. The Word of God has come to us and caused us uh, to, to, to be alive. And then the... the The risen Lord Jesus Christ has deposited in us His Spirit. The Spirit of Christ dwells in the people of God. And He is the guarantor of the good things to come. He is the down payment that we will make it to glory. That all that God has promised we will indeed inherit. We've been called by God. And you remember uh, our calling, brethren. As 1 Corinthians remind us. We are in Christ by His doing. And not many of us are wise. And not many of us are strong. In fact, God chose the things that are weak, the things that are foolish. We've been called into the family of the living God. And we have been given every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. We have glorious privileges. Do you know that? Do you know that to be true of you? When was the last time you thought of what Christ has done for you or what God has done for you in Christ and your heart is full of joy and your heart is worshiping and you're praising Him? That's the motivation to living for Him. Live in the way I'm calling you to live in light of what God has done for you. And if you don't think you've been forgiven much, if you don't think much on what God has done for you, then you will not have very much motivation at all to live the way that God has called you to live. And your enemy that wants to keep you from living that way is strong and alive. And you think, yeah, he's out there. No, he's right there within. And Paul knows that, and that's why he's going to be addressing these heart attitudes. If you want sufficient motivation for walking worthy of the calling by which you have been called, meditate on that calling. Think deeply about it. Drink deeply from the well of Christ's humiliation on your behalf and marvel at the mercy that he has shown you. Did you marvel this morning when we sung his mercy is more? Our sins are many. Did you feel it? 
Think on it now. Our sins are many. Are you like me? When you look within, do you see a cesspool of sin? Do you find in your inner being that you have far more, as one said, in common with Joseph Stalin than you do Jesus Christ? Do you know it well? Do you know the distance you have to go is so much further than the distance you have come? It is real grace. It is a glorious distance. God ought to be praised for it. But we're good Calvinists here, right? Deeply depraved. Sin has affected every faculty of our being. Do you know it? Jesus has redeemed you. It's all been washed away. It's been wiped away. It is separated from you as far as the east is from the west. He has given you new life. Do you know what you've been saved from? Only then do we want to live in a manner that corresponds with what God has done for us. And so secondly, forget yourselves. You're thinking we're clicking along at a good pace. You're about to find out it's going to go a lot slower. Forget yourself. The manner of a worthy walk. I want you to note here in Ephesians 4, he's called us to live a certain way. And this is what he's calling us to. To live with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There's a lot there, so here we go. First of all, what we need to work deep within our own hearts is a deep-seated humility. Thayer says of this word, it is the having of a humble opinion of oneself, a deep sense of one's moral littleness. Humility is an attitude that comes from the ability to correctly evaluate self in light of who God is and who you are. It is recognizing that I possess nothing that has not been given to me. As Edie says, it is the right view of ourselves and our relationship to Christ and to that glory to which we are called. Humility is the attitude of creaturely dependence. You know, our, our Savior was the most humble man to walk the face of the earth. He had a right understanding of who he was in his humanity and a right understanding of how he relates to God. He understood his human limitations. No, he was without sin, yes, indeed. But he was weak and he got hungry and he got tired and he had to grow. Humility takes on a different sense for you and me. I do think that for redeemed sinners, humility recognizes not only our creaturely dependence, but is conscious of one's own strong creaturely independence. That is our foolish tendency to live apart from God. That is to say, it is a right understanding not only of who we are before God, but who we are before God, not only as creatures, but as sinful creatures. Do you know that about your own heart? It makes us it makes us ready to deal with other people when we realize that we are weak and sinful. But we don't like to think that's true of ourselves. At least we're not as weak and sinful as the person next to us or our children or our spouse. Let me see if I can help us meditate on humility. Humility in the Christian can confess, I am the chiefest of sinners. Paul does this at the end of his life. You know, we always think of Paul, there's a man who was on fire for Christ, and rightly so, and his heart burned in love to Christ, and yet at the end of his life, he looks back and he says, I, I once was the chief of sinners? No. I was when I was murdering the church? No. I am. I am currently with all I've done for Christ and with all the love he has deposited in my heart for him, I still am the chiefest of sinners. It's not hyperbole. 
And some of us are like, well, yeah, of course I would say it, but do you feel it? That is, do you know it to be true of yourself? Again, if you're paying attention to your own heart, you'll begin to understand why Paul could say that. God calls us to this humility over and over again in Scripture. Philippians 2, 3, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. 1 Peter 5, 5, likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility towards one another. For God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. It's sometimes translated as modesty. One says, this modesty of mine is the foundation of all virtue. The tendency of church members, you and me, is to think more highly of ourselves than we ought. Well, that's what Paul says in Romans. He reminds us, don't think more highly of yourself than you ought. The one who understands the evil of his own heart is the only useful, fruitful, solid believer, John Owen says. Others are fit only to delude themselves and disquiet families, churches, and every association. Let us wisely consider our hearts and then see if we can be proud of our gifts and graces and whether we can go on and judge, condemn, and reproach others that have been tempted. Humility is thinking rightly about your relationship with God, but it's also thinking rightly about yourself in this way. You just think little of self. That is to say... You don't have a preoccupation with self in reference to other people. Humble hearts, this is what they don't look like. At least a few suggestions. Humility is not easily bent out of shape by others' desires, practices, differences, or sin. Humility is not stingy in exercising daily frequent gratitude in all things. Humility does not compare myself to others. It is not disappointed that I don't have what they have received or what they have been gifted with. Humility is not concerned with how others perceive me. I want others to view me as godly. I want others to view me as kind. I want others to view me as good. I want others to view me as handsome, beautiful, Humility is not thinking about me, it's thinking about others. Humility does not labor in church hoping others notice my service. Humility is not easily angered and inconvenienced. Humility doesn't blame shift. Humility doesn't think that other sins are the problem with my circumstances and my responses. On the contrary, here are a few suggestions of what humility might look like. It's a heart constantly giving thanks to God full of gratitude. Constantly giving thanks because I'm not in hell and my sins are forgiven and I have 10,000 blessings besides. Humility is found in a heart that magnifies the grace of God in the lives of others. You easily see what God is doing in others rather than seeing where they are failing and sinning. That does not mean that you turn a blind eye. It just means that you're focused on magnifying grace. Quite frankly, because you know how much you've been forgiven and you know how much you sin and you know how much you've offended the God who loves you. Humility is an encourager of faith and grace in the lives of others rather than judgmental at their faults. Humility is far more concerned with how far people have come rather than focused on how far they have to go. Humility is inquisitive about others in order to know their needs, in order to understand how we might pray for them, how we might minister to them, rather than focused on airing our own opinions about theology or truth or whatever it may be in the moment. Humility is ready to learn, eager to be taught, is reasonable. It is focused on growing in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ, so it's hungry to listen and learn from children, from spouses, from fellow churchmen, for someone that's not perhaps as far along in the process of sanctification as you perceive you are. Humility wants to grow. Humility is eager to instruct, teach, and help in gentleness, for others' good, motivated by love. 
Humility knows how and when to admonish the unruly, knows the difference between the unruly and the stumbling. As the passage goes on, and encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, and is patient with everyone. Humility manifests itself in these ways because humility is born out of a right understanding of who I am before the Lord and is not focused on self. We are able to minister to others. We are able to be unified with others. We are able to maintain that unity when we're not focused on self. And when we genuinely remember how much we have been forgiven, how much we sin, how much we fail, how far we have to go. Gentleness. Secondly, gentleness is carefulness in how one treats others. It is courteous and considerate. Thayer says, gentleness of attitude and behavior in contrast with harshness in one's dealings with others. I love Bridges. He says, gentleness is an active trait describing the manner in which we should treat others. And he goes on to say this, gentleness is illustrated by the way we would handle a carton of exquisite crystal glasses. It is the recognition that the human personality is valuable but fragile and must be handled with care. Brethren, we are like a bull in a china shop with other people. Rather than, here they are, my spouse, my little child who just sinned, my brother who offended me. How do I deal with them in such a way that I do not sin against them? and that I encourage them, and that I help them, and that I build them up? How do I be a peace pursuer and a problem solver? But we're just the opposite. You know that phrase, run to the fight? Some of you are like, oh yeah, I know that phrase. When there's a fire, when there's a fire, we need people to run to the fight. We have two tendencies in relational difficulties. We either run to the fight with all the wrong motives, Instead of humility, we come with pride. Instead of gentleness, we come with harshness. Instead of patience, we come with anger. Instead of love that bears with others, we come with hatred. We run to the right with the wrong motives. There's another thing that we do. We run from the fight, fight with wrong motives. But what Paul is calling us to, what God is calling us to in relationships is run to the fight with the right heart. Hendrickson gives some synonyms of this gentleness. It's yieldedness, reasonableness, big-heartedness, geniality, considerateness. There is a possession of a subdued spirit to the will of God and not angered by the supposed or actual injuries leveled by men. Gentleness is one of the requirements of the elders. It's a different word that's used there, but the concept is much the same. A gentle person is someone who is conscious of his own sins, struggles, and weaknesses so he can deal in gentleness with others. He wants to fan the flame of faith and be a worker with the Savior for the people of God's joy. He understands Christ-like love in dealing with others covers a multitude of sins and how much more so a multitude of differences, convictions, and practices. The gentle person is not willing to break the bruised reed nor put out the smoldering flax. They don't need to prove they're right. God's people are called to be yielding and tolerant. In fact, Paul says in Philippians 4, 5, let your gentle spirit be known to all men. The Lord is near. What is being spoken about in Philippians is the opposite of self-seeking. It is the opposite of a contentious spirit. It isn't merely the absence of self-will and self-seeking and contentiousness, but the practicing, as Carson says, of self-effacing kindness. It is not claiming attention for ourselves, but paying attention to others. It is the consideration of others while waiving one's own rights, preferences, and concerns. It's a Christ-like characteristic. In fact, it is one of the fruits of the Spirit of Christ. In Galatians 5, Matthew tells us that Jesus says, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart. Paul says, now I, Paul, myself urge you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. People were at ease in the presence 
of Christ. They were at rest. His gentleness made people restful. It's interesting that the only people that were unrestful were the hypocritical Pharisees. Here's the most righteous, holy man to ever walk the face of the earth, and yet he is gentle with sinners, and gentle with sinners who have offended him, and who have sinned against him, and who have shaken their fists at him, and yet he deals with them out of gentleness. In relation to self, those characterized by gentleness are far more shocked at their own sins than they are at the sins of others. They have the mind of Christ and count others' interests more important than their own. They're not interested in what others can do for them, but what they can do for others. They have become nothing, and they genuinely live as if everyone around them is more important than themselves. Some qualities of gentle people, they are understanding people. They're approachable people. Ask yourself, and this is a good one for me, does my wife view me as an, as an approachable man, husband? Do my children view me that way? They are sympathetic people because they know their own weaknesses and sins. They are encouraging people. They are concerned people. You want to be around gentle people. They're fair-minded. They're level-headed. And they know how to genuinely welcome others' ideas, opinions, and convictions, though they may be in disagreement with them. They don't feel threatened by other people's differences. And they are not threatening in their demeanor or words. They make allowances for weaknesses, faults, ignorances, and sins in the lives of others because they understand that love covers a multitude of sins. And they know how to demonstrate that in practical ways. You know, and it's a silly example, but it's one that I thought of. And once I think of one example, I can never come up with another one. Uh, but, you know, let me just kind of give you an example of what gentleness is not when someone has a differing opinion than you. Uh, you know, there was, uh, there was this one mom, and this is a made-up story, don't worry. Uh, but uh, there's a one mom, and, and the other mom came to her and said, Hey, uh, how are you doing? And she said, Well, we're doing great. And, and let me tell you, uh, we, we had hot dogs last night and chips, and it was great fun. And the other mom's like, The all-beef one's right. <laughs> You wouldn't have fed those type of hot dogs to your kids. It's, they, they can't even handle a difference of opinion or a difference of view. That's harshness rather than gentleness, right? Or, or you're talking with your brother and you've met him for the first time out in the lot after service and he says, he says well, um, the other week the Lord said to me, wait a minute, <laughs> uh, potential heretic right over here, everyone. He's saying the Lord's speaking to him. Harshness. In fact, a gentle spirit might say, this is the first time I've met this man. I don't even need to deal with that issue. It's not even important. It could be down the road. How can I love him? How can I pray for him? How can I encourage him? But no, you understand, right? Because we know we hear something that's different than our conviction, our way of life, and what the hair on the back of our, our neck stands up, you know, we're, we're trying not to show it, but we'll never be friends, you know. Someone came, someone came to me the first time, uh, maybe a spirit of gentleness, the first time uh, I had met this person. It's like, we're going to be best of friends. <laughs> we are? Okay, well, good. A heart for people. Gentle people are listening people. Gentle people are concerned with the needs of others. Will I be gentle and considerate, Bridges said, seeking to understand the pressures and insecurities others face and make allow making allowances accordingly. Gentleness, brethren, works to walk in other people's shoes. And I want to put this in context. You're like, okay, yeah, maybe that person I mean out there. We're talking about our spouse, too. We're talking about our children. Do you want to walk in their shoes? Do you want to think about how they feel? You want to think about how they approach a problem. And so gentleness is reasonable with people. Patience. Patience. This is not primarily the patience of waiting for your number to be called at the DMV or waiting a little longer in line than normal at the doctor's office. It's more closely related to the idea of the ability to bear up under provocation. When someone insults you or attacks you with words or actions, 
do not repay them in kind. That's what patience is. But absorb it and dissolve the blow that has been given. Why not rather be wronged, Paul said. It's a good principle to carry through with us through life. Patience is a manifestation of love. Paul says love is patience. Patient. Patient doesn't have a short fuse. I love the biblical picture in the Old Testament. It takes a long time for the nose to get red. For us, we might think more in terms of, you know, it takes a long time for the ears to get red. It's a godlike characteristic. It prolongs judgment. It allows one to not dish out what is deserved. It's the opposite of irritability and short-temperedness. In Romans 2.4, we're reminded that God is patient with an unbelieving world and desires that they would come to repentance. God bears with evil and postpones deserved punishment. Is that not amazing? Some of us have a, a very strict sense of justice. Nope, sorry, done. And that's not how God deals with you and me. Praise God. That's not how he deals with you and me. Do you, we would not be here looking at Ephesians 4. We would be where we deserve to be. But he prolongs judgment. It's profoundly godlike to be patient with others. It's Christ-like. Yet for this reason, Paul says, I found mercy so that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might demonstrate, here it is, his perfect patience as an example for those who would believe him for eternal life. Christ could have obliterated Paul. Yeah, sorry, you fought against me. You said bad things about my people. You drug them off to prison and you approved of murder. And so you're done. And he would have said it righteously. And it would have been done in justice. And yet, no, he was patient. Why? To show his goodness, to show his mercy, to show how he handles sinners. Shouldn't we be the same way as our Savior? No, we're ready, ready to obliterate everyone. I'm a parent. Countless times I've been ready to obliterate my child's heart just for acting like a child. Rather than taking opportunities to teach and instruct and help, they're smiling. They weren't smiling then. We're ready to obliterate our spouse because of unrealistic expectations, because they sin. Oh, yeah, by the way, we forgot that we've ever sinned. We're impatient with people. In fact, we want everyone around us to be perfect as the Lord in heaven is perfect, except for us. I should get the pass, but not you, and at least not this time, because I've given three passes before. We're quick to anger rather than patience, and we need patience so badly. We need it when we've been wronged or when we perceive we've been wronged. So often we're not even wronged. We're just making up things that other people are saying or doing and thinking that everything in the world is against us. Quite honestly, because we're not humble, we're prideful and think everything is about us. We need patience with the flock. We need it with one another in all of our differences. We need this long-suffering attitude. We need patience when sheep next you, to us and, and, and don't pretend like this has never happened. And if it hasn't, it will if you're spending time with the people of God. When the sheep next to you finally goes, bah, right in your ear. And grab them by the wool and just, <laughs> no, we need patience. Because they have differing convictions. They think music should be sung one way. They think Sunday school should look one way. They think the elders should be doing something this way. And we can go on and on and on and we need Patience with one another. Patience is saying, I want you to experience the goodness of God. I want you to grow in grace. I want you to know the Lord more. And that's the focus. It's not on, yeah, well, that's weird. <laughs> we need patience in the midst of the flock. It is the refusal to get frustrated and react and retaliate when people sin against us, when people that are, are different than us. Patient recognizes people will sin against me just like I sin against God. 
And again, I know I've said it, but I keep repeating it. It needs to be the thought that motivates us to this. How much have I sinned against God? It is infinite. It is ongoing. It is continual. It is consistent. And yet, how patient is God with me? This calling that he's called me to, he pours out his patience and his mercy and his loving kindness and his grace. And he is working on me and in me to get me to glory. Though it many times... I confess I'm working against them. One more word about patience. If you know someone who is mean to you, if you've ever spent any time with anyone, or you perceive that they've been mean or a jerk, and you're not patient and kind with them, but return in kind, return with a sharp word, you lack patience and kindness. I can tell you the times in the last week I've lacked humility, gentleness, and patience just with my bride. Again, we could go on and on. I think a beautiful picture of patience is what David does with Shimei. You remember the account of Shimei is cursing him and throwing stones at him. If you want to test my patience, curse at me on the way out and throw stones at me. David is leaving the city because Solomon, I'm sorry, because his son Absalom has taken the throne. A little bit of a stressful situation. And I think it's Abishai, don't quote me on that, that says, hey, old David, why should this dead dog curse my Lord? Let me go over and cut off his head. <laughs> you know, if it was me, if I was King David, I'd be like, yeah, that sounds pretty good right about now. That's not patience. David essentially says, without going into the account, I'll leave it in the hands of God. I'll leave it in the hands of God. Showing tolerance with one another in love. And I know you're thinking, man, there's a, there's a third point. He's not even finished with the second point. We're going to be here all day. I will move much quickly through that last point, Okay. Showing tolerance in love. To bear up with in love. And I'll move quickly here. We put up with others. It's a good translation, actually. Uh, we tolerate others. Why? Out of love for them. We understand love covers a multitude of sin. Let me just give you a very loose translation, a compilation of other people's translations of 1 Corinthians 13 that speaks of love. It's just helpful to get us thinking about it because it's not the same words we use all the time. Love is patient, so patient. Love cares more for others than for self. Love doesn't want what it doesn't have or boil over with jealousy. Love doesn't strut doesn't have a swelled head, isn't rude, isn't always me first, doesn't fly off the handle, doesn't keep score of the sins of others, doesn't revel when others grovel. Have you ever been happy when a brother or sister that you maybe don't appreciate as much fails or stumbles? That's not love. That's rejoicing in the, the stumbling of others doesn't keep score of the sins of others. And then we are like, like, none of us like accounting except for accountants, uh, but, but, but all of us love accounting when it comes to the sins of others. Right? We, we're like, we don't need a book, we don't need a pen, we don't need addition. Yep, 653 times in the last year, boom, you did this. We keep account of one another's wrongs. It's not the way love is. It takes pleasure in the flowering of truth. It bears up under anything, trusts God always, always looks for the best, never looks back, but keeps on going to the end. When we love, as God has called us to love, we tolerate others. We put up with them. You know, I, uh, again, I, I brought up in the beginning of the sermon, you know, we have all these differences, and I, I mentioned our spouses, like, I didn't realize when I first got married that like we wouldn't agree on everything. I mean, after all, I was God's gift to her. You know, I just thought it would always be. 
that what I thought was best would be best. I very quickly found out that we differ on everything. We clean cutting boards differently. You know, I'm like licking raw meat off of it. My wife is like bleaching it with a bottle. Just a difference. But you know what? I've been annoyed. That's not a biblical way of saying it. I've been perturbed. I've been angry before watching her use bleach. I know it's funny in one sense, but how horrifically sad is it? That's who I really am. Rather than loving others, putting up with differences, tolerating. Again, my focus is on me. Well, I do that better. The idea is that we need to be especially conscientious in loving one another so that we cover our differences. First of all, our sins. But I'm just arguing from the greater to the lesser, how much more so our differences. Why do we do all this? Because we eagerly, we want to be diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. And brother, and I could go on and on in, uh, in regards to love, and I know it, I kind of just cut it off, but I want us to move on so that we can finish this up and I don't keep you here all day. I think you get the picture. We're eager to maintain the peace, the unity that Christ has already accomplished. You see, sometimes we look at a passage like this and say, how do we, how do we create unity? No. The risen Lord Jesus Christ has made the two into one. Jew and Gentile, male and female, slave and free, those with a host of differences into one. He has united them together. That is what he has done by his power and his goodness and his grace. And we are called to put on these heart attitudes so that we will maintain that unity. That's what we're being called to. Put on these dispositions. Put on these Christ-like graces. Adorn yourself with them deep down in the heart. Make them part and parcel of who you are. Because your natural tendency is to be just the opposite. You remember, Pastor Randy has read it for us, but out of the heart proceed all this evil. And it's there we have to destroy it. And it's there we have to clothe ourselves with Christ-like graces. The good news is that the Spirit of Christ is at work doing that work in us. And we are to cooperate with Him in it. And brethren, I know, you know, sometimes I would tell uh, people that are preaching, when you preach somewhere for the first time, preach indicatives, not imperatives. And here I go preaching imperatives. And I don't want you to hear me beating you up. And I don't want you to hear God's word beating you up. If it beats you up, let it do it. But know that there is a Savior who was bloodied and beaten on your behalf, who lived and died for you, so that every time you fail to live up to the high calling by which you have been called, there is immense, full, free pardon that wipes it all away. And then let that motivate you to get right back up on the saddle again and live according to the way God has called us to live. Keep on repenting, keep on believing, keep on obeying, but clothe yourselves with these heart attitudes so that we as a people at Calvary seek to preserve unity. We are eager to maintain it. Who cares about our differences and that brings us to our last point dwell think on focus on your triune god i'm gonna read it brief comments and we're gone all right 
Note what he says. There is one body. And the there is is supplied by the translator. It's like Paul has said all of this. And then he just goes, one body and one spirit. Just as also you were called in one hope of your calling. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. I've preached a sermon just on that. And I'm not going to do it. This is what he's saying. We're one. We have one body. We are the blood-bought children of God. Yes, there is the universal church. Here is the local expression of that universal church. We have been brought together in one body. Christ has united us together. We have that in common. We are a part of the children of God. God is our Father. Christ is our elder brother. We are His in His family one body and one spirit. The spirit has done all this work. The spirit has worked to make us one. The spirit gifts and graces us so that we will live with one another in harmony and so that we will serve one another and help one another heavenward and so that we will grow. The spirit has brought about this oneness. Just as also you were called in one hope of your calling, we all have the same hope. We were without hope and now we have hope. The hope of eternal life. The hope of forever with Jesus. The hope of saved to sin no more. To walk with him and talk with him without the taint of this old man. One Lord, have you come to faith in Jesus Christ? Is he your Lord and Savior? He's mine too. One Lord. One Lord who loves us. One Lord who died for us. One Lord who died for that person that I'm in disagreement with. One Lord who lived and died for that person who is very different than me. We have one Lord and that Lord loves each and every separate child as his precious possession. Delights in them. How can I be at odds with them when Jesus is reconciled to them? And loves them dearly. One faith. It's the same faith. We have the same object of faith. And the same way of coming to Christ. We have believed. One baptism. One baptism. We all participated. In being buried. With Christ in death. And being raised to newness of life. Where we declared. That Christ has done that for us in saving us. It's a picture of what the Lord has done for us. We are reminded that we all have publicly declared that Jesus is our Lord and that we will follow him. One God and Father who is over all and through all and in all. Again, so much more could be said, but here is the Father who loves each and every child with the same love with which he loves Jesus. Think about that. John tells us that. He loves you and me like he loves his son. Do you know what he said of his son on that mount? This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. When he looks at you and me, he sees his son and he is well pleased. And when he looks at your spouse whom you're at odds with, who knows and loves the Lord Jesus Christ, he is well pleased with them. And he is well pleased with a saint that has a different theological conviction than you and different religious practices than you. He is well pleased. If God is well pleased with them, oh man, I can deal with them in humility. I can deal with them in gentleness and patience and love that bears all things, that tolerates and puts up. We need this in us. That's what's going on. That's the foundation of it all. It's our triune God and the work he has done for us. It is the motivation and it is the foundation. Brethren, we are called, though very, very different, to pursue, to maintain the unity that the Spirit has produced. And we do it with these heart-like, these, these heart-level graces that Paul has taught us about. And I've done a very insufficient job but meditate on them and think on them and apply them to your own heart and get to living the way God has called you to live in light of the high calling by which you've been called.
Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. And I would simply pray that anywhere that I have confused it in the minds of your precious people, help them to forget it. Help them to remember the truth that was spoken. Help us all to live in light of what Christ has done for us, to walk worthy of the calling by which we have been called. In all humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another in love, eagerly seeking to maintain the unity the Spirit has produced in the bond of peace. Father, we need your help. We need your grace. As always, we're so thankful for your forgiveness. We're so thankful that you enable us to live as you've called us to live. Please keep working on us. Thank you that you are not done with us yet. Father, do not leave us to ourselves. We want you to continue to sanctify and grow us so that we will magnify the grace that unites sinners together with a common goal and a common cause and a common mission and a common Lord. We pray this today in Jesus' name. Amen.